0: Well, people love, as Dr. McDougall says, good news about their bad habits. And the, the reality is statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics. And what they're doing right now is trying to manipulate people under the uh, pretense that they're providing scientific input, when in reality all they're doing is uh, trying to provide promotional materials to support you know, whatever highly processed concoction that they're advocating. There's another conflict, too, and particularly that's true with athletes is that sometimes what might be good for short-term athletic performance isn't necessarily the same thing that's good for long-term health stability. You know, if you look at NFL linemen, there's things they can do to enhance their performance, like the use of anabolic steroids, which will make them grow bigger and faster. Uh, It leads to, you know, testicular atrophy and premature death, and, you know, maybe why the average age of death is as low as it is. But the point is, what you do to maximize short-term gain isn't, necessarily what we're most interested in. we're most interested in is long-term health. And so sometimes athletes can get confused because, you know, they're so focused on short-term athletic performance that they compromise their long-term health.
1: Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete podcast. We are Jess and BJ and we're on a mission to create a better world. Although that may sound like an egotistical mission, we don't believe it to be so, because the change we dream of comes from within each person who is ready to reach higher levels of health. As each one of us wakes up to our power of choice, we wake up to the control that we have over our responses to the stimuli of our world, and that includes food. It is our experience that the better you feel, the better you feel. So just for one moment, Imagine a world where everyone was feeling better in their bodies. And is that not a better world? We believe that each one of us has more jurisdiction over our health than we know. And I'm going to make the assumption that our guest today agrees with this statement. Dr. Alan Goldhammer is the co-founder of True North Health Center, the world's largest facility specializing in medically supervised water-only fasting. Founded in 1984 and located in Santa Rosa, California, True North has seen well over 20,000 people successfully complete upwards of 40 days of consuming only water. The True North Health Experience is a fully supported health adventure that includes complementary modalities like meditation, yoga, psychotherapy, workshops, and education, all within an alcohol-free, stimulant-free environment that is designed to allow guests to fast, detoxify, lose weight, and make the lifestyle changes they desire in a health-promoting, restorative environment. Dr. Goldhammer is co-author of a game-changing book that I read many years ago entitled The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force that Undermine Health and Happiness. As you can imagine, anything with the word mastering in its title definitely has our attention because for yogi triathlete, mastery is the only option. We're so grateful to you, Dr. Goldhammer, for your time with us today, as we have many eager athletes in this community looking to reach their next level of health. So without another moment passing, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I read The Pleasure Trap years ago, and it was such a game changer for me because I, like so many people, were like, oh, my... (laughs) My body needs french fries, my body needs potato chips, my body needs these things. And what I realized is that I was the one that was creating that need by, by feeding those habits. So can you explain what the pleasure trap is?
0: Sure. It's the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's the reason why people are fat, sick, and miserable. It's the reason why we have so much chronic degenerative disease. Because the pleasure trap, uh, when it relates to dietary factors, involves the artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain that comes from chemicals added to our food, and those chemicals include salt, oil, and sugar. So that's why we recommend a plant-based SOS-free diet. SOS, of course, is the international symbol of danger, but we use it to refer to salt, to oil, and sugar. Highly processed food byproducts, not foods, that are added to food, to stimulate dopamine in the brain, the dopamine gives us a response we know of as pleasure. And the, the consequence is we leads to systematic overeating. If you put these chemicals in the feet of rats or mice, they'll gain 49% of their body weight in 60 days. Not for psychological reasons, but biological reasons. And the same thing is true with people. If you give people these chemicals, they will systematically overeat. And eventually, that's why you see two-thirds of people overweight or obese in industrialized societies. So you have to get rid of the chemicals if you want to get rid of the obesity.
1: And what's happening with, can you speak to the microbiome, which is such a buzzword now? Like, sure. do, do people really understand what microbiome is and how to well, I don't think
0: any of us fully understand the, the magnitude of the microbiome, but you have, they estimate five pounds uh, on average, uh, a trillion creatures living inside your intestinal <sighs> tract. So these creatures are living and drinking and eating and defecating inside you right now. And what they poo inside you depends on what you feed them. So if you feed them soluble fibers, you get fertilizer like vitamin K. If you feed them animal foods, meat, fish, fowl, eggs, and dairy products, you have much higher levels of TMA, which becomes TMAO, which are methylamine oxidase, which damages the animal lining of the vessels and probably is why uh, people on high animal food diets tend to have much higher incidence of colon cancer and heart disease and other problems. So that's why we encourage people to eat as much as possible a whole plant food diet. Uh, but, you know, just being on a, on a uh, plant-based diet doesn't guarantee health either. You know, vegan foods can be absolute trash. You know, uh, soda pop, french fries, these can all be vegan. They don't necessarily have any animal foods in them. But if they're full of uh, uh, added uh, salt, oil, and sugar, you end up still with the pleasure trap, overeating, and the consequences uh, of compromised health. So, And unfortunately, you can't make up for a poor diet with, say, getting a little extra sleep or getting a little extra exercise. Uh, diet, sleep, exercise, all important components if maximum health is desired. And, you know, our concern isn't just increasing people's life expectancy. That is the average age that they'll live. More importantly, we're concerned about improving Healthy life expectancy, the number of years that people live fully functional. We want our patients to live until they have not only a good life, but a good death, where they go to sleep one night and don't wake up. Not spend the last 10 years of their life unable to talk or move, lying in some nursing home bed, waiting for people to come and change their diaper because they engaged in too much short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior.
2: <laughs> is, there, <laughs> is there a way to measure that? Like, Obviously, we can do life expectancy, but are you working on something... To measure health expectancy? Is, is there such a thing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, the, um, one of the keys of our uh, research, the True North Health Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit research organization. We look like a clinic, but we're really a research facility in disguise. <laughs> one of the things we're doing with our partners at the Mayo Clinic, at the Buck Institute, at Washington University, and others is trying to come up with non invasive diagnostic markers that predict who will benefit uh, from fasting, health. How- fast and, and, and make these dietary changes and, and, and uh, you know when we've accomplished our goals unfortunately most uh, biological markers today are designed to measure disease not to measure health and so you know yeah we're formulating different ideas about how you can assess and, and promote and and provide uh, assessments of health but it's definitely uh, in its early stages we spend uh, billions and billions of dollars treating heart disease, cancer, and stroke. If we focused our attention on the actual causes of disease, which is essentially in the case of can- a heart disease, cancer, and stroke, it's the use of tobacco, alcohol, uh, animal foods, and highly processed uh, foods like refined carbohydrates and sugar, oil, etc., um, we wouldn't get uh, the leading causes of death, or at least we would delay their onset dramatically, reducing the cost of care and, more importantly, allowing people to make the last 10 or 20 years of their life perhaps the richest and most rewarding years instead of uh, being compromised, uh, spending inordinate amounts of money trying to sustain people uh, without actually affecting their all-cause mortality.
1: So how do you respond? Like, I, I don't know, maybe it just drives your desire further, but how do you respond to this, like the research that's coming out that's... I mean, we can basically give people a lot of good news about their bad habits, you know, the butter, the carnivore movement, um, wine is is healthy for you. How do you respond to that?
0: Well, people love, as Dr. McDougall says, good news about their bad habits. And the the reality is statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics. And what they're doing right now is trying to manipulate people under the uh, pretense that they're providing scientific input. When in reality, all they're doing is uh, trying to provide promotional materials to support you know, whatever highly processed concoction uh, that, they're, uh, that they're advocating. There's another conflict too, and particularly that's true with athletes, is that sometimes what might be good for short-term uh, athletic performance isn't necessarily the same thing that's good for long-term health stability. You know, If you look at NFL linemen, there's things they can do to enhance their performance like the use of anabolic steroids which will make them grow bigger and uh, faster. Uh, It leads to, you know, testicular atrophy and premature death and, you know, maybe why the average age of death is as low as it is. But the point is what you do to maximize short-term gain isn't necessarily what we're most interested in. we're most interested in is long-term health. And so sometimes athletes can get confused because, you know, they're so focused on, short-term athletic performance so that they compromise their long-term health. And, you know, it's interesting if you go into a group like the, NFL, uh, the uh, NBA, for example, uh, where people, you know, are aging out in their mid-30s, it's not because they don't have the skill set necessarily, but they can't recover from that long 82-game uh, season. And so injury recovery becomes kind of a key thing, and that's where diet and lifestyle issues can be important. It's also interesting looking at movies like Game Changers, where you look at highly competitive athletes that have adopted plant-based diets, and some aspects of athleticism, particularly endurance, appear to be profoundly benefited uh, through eating, for example, plant food diets. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, and and even things like strength and other things, apparently uh, many athletes are able to both maximize performance and protect their long-term health. And so that's kind of encouraging to see that kind of information coming out.
1: Well, that was the biggest thing that we saw when we went to a plant-based diet because being endurance athletes came became, came before our diet change was the recovery that we can yep. do an Ironman, you know, a, for me, like a 14 and a half hour race and, you know, the next day obviously feel inflammation in the body. My movement is definitely compromised, but two days later... You wouldn't really know if you saw me walking that I had just done that. So what's happening in the body when you've got a foundation of of plants that's allowing for the recovery?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a bunch of research coming out now. And what's really fascinating is my expertise is in fasting, the use of long-term water, fasting, fasting, giving the body a chance to undo the consequences of of these uh, excesses that have accumulated. And what we find is the biological changes that occur with fasting are often exactly the same biological changes that occur with exercise. So you start thinking, now, why would exercise where you're vigorously active and fasting where if you're doing it properly, you're resting to minimize protein degradation and maximize fat burning, why would they induce the same changes in the body? And it's, if you think about it, one of the things that exercise and fasting have in common is that they both undo the consequences of dietary excess. It's dietary excess, poor dietary choices, that makes it so people don't recover well from their athletic endeavors, Why it takes longer to recover, while they have uh, endurance-related issues. And when you, when you exercise on a uh, health-promoting-type diet. You're going to have less inflammation. You're going to recover faster. And exercise and fasting are both working on the body to undo the consequences of dietary excess. So if we just think about with fasting and with exercise, let's think about things that go down. Glucose and insulin um, uh, control are improved with exercise and with fasting. Insulin resistance is reduced. Um, insulin growth factor one, IGF one, the lower your IGF one, the longer animals and the animal studies live, the healthier, uh, people tend to be fasting and exercise are both, uh, shown to reduce IGF one leptin, the lower your leptin levels, the lower your inflammation, uh, inflammation itself is probably responsible, not only for trouble with, uh, recovery in athletic performance, but also for, contributing to heart disease and diabetes and cancer, other problems, certainly pain. Uh, Blood pressure and heart rate are improved in athletes. Athletes typically have lower, stronger, more stable uh, cardiovascular function uh, fasting is the most powerful tool at normalizing blood pressure that's ever been shown. We did a study with T. Colin Campbell from Cornell, 174 consecutive patients with hypertension, 174 people achieved pressure low enough to eliminate the need for medication. We have the largest effects ever shown with an average effect size of 60 points in uh, stage 3 hypertension. So, you know, um, mTOR, mammalian target of rampamycin, mTOR levels, when they go down, that's associated with increasing autophagy. And autophagy is the way the body gets rid of uh, cellular debris and cancer cells and all this. Uh, in fact, in in 2016, the Nobel Prize was re- given to a gentleman who discovered in, in uh, the importance of autophagy in helping reverse and prevent uh, degeneration and disease, including cancer. And exercise and uh, fasting both have beneficial effects as it relates to mTOR. Uh, the microbiology you mentioned the gut microbiome. Um, fasting has a profound effect on the microbiome. In fact, it's kind of like rebooting the hard drive on a computer. You know, your hard drive comes corrupted. You turn the computer off. You turn it back on. You don't exactly know why, but things start working again. And it seems <laughs> like fasting, that's a good analogy for what seems to happen in the body. We may not know all the mechanisms why yet, but clearly um, there's a rebooting that takes place. Inflammation in general goes down with fasting. If you look at uh, IL 6, TNL, alpha, other objective markers, acute phase reactor proteins, they all uh, tend to normalize uh, with fasting. And um, the abnormalities essentially associated with metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome, you know, the elevations of um, uh, low HDL, high LDL, uh, elevated triglycerides, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, this syndrome that's associated with basically premature death from Cancer, heart disease, and even uh, COVID nineteen acute infections. Uh, the people that have metabolic syndrome are much higher rates of having uh, the acute reactions uh, or dying. Um, both fasting and exercise reduce metabolic syndrome. So you see this. In fact, we've used the exercise research, which was pretty robust. You know, there's pretty good data out there showing that people that exercise regularly do better than people that don't. And they've done a bunch of research and identified different markers. And so we've just taken that research and said, well, let's look at that marker. And sure enough, it tends to show up with fasting, too. Not everything goes down with exercise or fasting, some things go up. Um, so, you know, ghrelin uh, is, is, is associated with insulin uh, sensitivity, uh, normalizes with, with both exercise and fasting. Um, mitochondrial biogenesis, the actual production of the energy-producing mechanisms inside the cells are enhanced, uh, certainly during fasting. I don't know the literature on exercise on that. Um, beta-hydroxybutyrate is the chemical that your brain burns when you go into ketosis. So when you burn your glycogen stores up and you go into ketosis, there's a product of uh, uh, a beta-hydroxybutyrate, which becomes the primary fuel of the brain. The brain actually changes fuels. In in fact that's one of the uh, biological identities of humans. Humans fast. Humans can change their brain fuel from burning glucose to burning fat. Chimpanzees don't do that. They can't fast. They go a week. They're done. So humans that didn't and it was our ancient ancestors that couldn't fast or that is couldn't change their brain to burning fat died. All of them. We know that because today every human being can uh, do this conversion, can do this fasting. It's a biological adaptation. It was so critical for humans to be able to do this because our brains are so big and our brains are actually our biggest burners of glucose. And if we didn't have the ability to change fuels, when spring came late, we would die. We would live about a week. A 70-kilogram human doesn't die in a week. It can last 70 days because we change from burning glucose to burning fat. And all, all we've done with our use of clinical fasting is taken this very natural ancient practice and applied it to you know, modern problems of dietary excess, which really would never have happened in a natural setting. Uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor goes up with exercise. If you take rats in a cage, genetically bred rats, they're identical. Every, their feed is the same. But you give one rat an exercise wheel, Number one, the rat will use it, He will ex- or, or she will exercise. And the rats that exercise don't get dementia. They don't get rat Alzheimer's disease. And so they said, why? How come the rats that are in the cage that don't exercise get a high degree of this brain breakdown, the breakdown of the nerves in the brain that's associated with dementia, Alzheimer's disease? But the rats that exercise, everything else being equal, are protected. What's going on? Well, they found out there's a chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. The rats that exercise have much higher levels of BDNF because exercise increases BDNF. BDNF, it's been shown to protect the nerves from the damage from free radicals, from that lousy rat chow that they tend to feed rats. And as a consequence, the BDNF, the exercise that produces the BDNF protects the rats from dementia. Well, the other thing you can do in rats, is you can systematically underfeed them, so calorie restriction, or you can periodically fast them. You periodically fast the rats, you double their lifespan. And they have much higher BDNF, because both exercise and fasting increase BDNF, both in rats and in humans. So when people, humans are exercising, they're going to have lower Alzheimer's rates, everything else being equal. Now, if they smoke and they drink, and they, you know, but the point is that the higher BDNF levels associated with lower risk from dementia and cognitive decline, exercise does it. Again, fasting does it. Um, insulin sensitivity. People that exercise have increased insulin sensitivity. Their insulin works better. And the same thing true with fasting. That's why about 80% of our type 2 diabetics can achieve normal blood sugars without medications. We get them off the insulin, off the metformin, and all the consequences from that. Uh, I mentioned, I, I always have trouble with his name, it's Yoshinari Oshumi, but he's the guy that won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2016 for his work on autophagy. Uh, and we've already talked about gut microbiome and gut diversity. So lots of things change with exercise, lots of things change with fasting. There's really a natural bond there. And the combination of fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or, lo- or uh, um, long-term fasting, um, both have profound implications, for example, we recommend that everybody fast every day for between twelve and sixteen hours. so that means they don 't eat three hours before they go to bed and they maybe delay their morning meal, maybe they do some exercise before the morning meal. It turns out people that do that tend to preferentially burn fat, so people trying to burn fat may find there's some benefit exercising uh, at the end of their intermittent fasting cycle if, mm. if Fat mobilization is the goal that they're actually working on. And even that 12 hours or 16 hours. Now, some athletes are going to need to have a broader feeding window because they can't get enough calories in. Because, especially on a whole plant food diet, this low caloric density, high nutrition density food, you've got to eat a lot. And if you're burning 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 calories, you know, it's almost like a full time job just to get enough healthy food in. But so the point is whether it's 12 or 16 hours, depending on your use. That period of fasting is thought to induce changes associated with improved health and longevity. And Walter Longo is really one of the experts in that. And he published a paper in 2015 in Journal of Metabolism that really reviews this in detail. Um, we do... Um, In addition to interim fasting, we will recommend that people that are appropriately screened and properly monitored undergo long-term fasting. And we do that from 5 to 40 days, depending on the circumstances and the situation. And that can also have a profound effect in helping people recover from injury and illness. Uh, And we also believe that healthy people doing that periodically, maybe for briefer periods of time, it may be in the more 5- to 10-day range, may uh, get long-term benefits because inducing some of these biological changes. So people that are exercising and periodically, intermittent fasting, periodically longer-term fasting, eating a whole plant-food SOS-free diet, and getting enough sleep, I think they're doomed to success. That they're going to not only be able to maximize athletic performance, but they're going to be able to slow the aging process and uh, defer the debility that so commonly happens as people hit, each hit the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth decade. Now, there are downsides to this approach. Uh, my mother uh, told me when she turned 92 and uh, later in her life had adopted this type of a diet, um, she found that she had outlived all 52 of her lifelong friends. And so she was <laughs> 92 years old and, and really alone because all of her friends, many of the ones that used to make fun of her diet, by the way, were dead. And she said to me, she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients that if you're going to do this type of diet and lifestyle, make younger friends. (laughs) And she said, not just a little younger, because even 10 years wasn't enough, because by the time they're in their 80s, you know, a lot of people are shot. So she said, tell me to make much younger friends (laughs) or pick some healthy friends so that there'll be people left because it gets lonely when you're in your 90s and there's nobody left.
1: So, um, (laughs) I love that that. we're already losing where, yeah, we, we know how that feels to be lonely. Like, you know, (laughs) nobody wants to invite you over when you're not drinking alcohol, you're not using oil and you're you're not not staying up late. Yeah. And you're not staying up late. You want to eat dinner at five and you're not eating the dead flesh of animals. So the invitations No fun
0: anymore. No,
1: the invitations stop early. Um, so I have a question about athletes. As now we're in 2021, races are starting to come back on the calendar, which is great. So you're recommending that we all kind of, you know, intermittent fast every day. And I think 12 hours, because BJ and I have really been, we've been setting 16-8 as our goal, but it's got to be rolling because when you've got a couple of workouts in that eight hour feeding window, plus refueling, plus you know the preparation and the cleanup is pretty tough. Um, but no as question.
0: And you also have to modify sometimes the form of the food. And there's when we're trying to have people lose weight, we'll say, you know whole foods minimally processed. But for example, with athletes, sometimes we'll do more soups. We'll do uh, some. Sometimes we'll do juices and other things that reduce some of the the fiber because you get plenty of fiber from the whole foods you're eating. Mm. And so, in order to get more calories in, but without overloading protein or fat, uh, it's necessary sometimes to use a little bit more. You, we might have some rice pasta rather than the the, the the whole brown rice. We might use a little bit more. Um, uh, um, a ratio of cooked to raw foods, there's different things you can do to increase caloric density, but still keep that 15 to 18% of calories fat, 10% of calories from protein, balance coming from whole food, complex carbohydrates. Um, and athletes also have to be more concerned about hydration. Uh, you know, if you're out there competing, maintaining hydration uh, is a critical issue if you want to minimize recovery problems. I think a lot of the injuries that uh, athletes see can sometimes be traced back to dehydration and its consequences.
1: Yeah, I believe that too. And so as we're coming into race season, if we're looking at um, athletes going into a race where they're going to be consuming a lot of those concentrated sugars, like in the form of gel, like the quick hit to keep you going, um, and then coming off a race, when would be the best time for them? Like if they're like, okay, I want to go to True North, I want to do some fasting, would that be prior to the race or after the race to help them? clean up
0: so depending on the type of competition and effort endeavors you're in, in dealing with many times people will use fasting as a component in recovery you know you you have a period of re-alimentation and a, and a period of recovery to deal with inflammation and other problems particularly at high levels of competition that's really one of the limiting factors is how do you get the body to heal up from the damages that occur from just putting it beyond its normal loads and so uh, it can be used both ways. You wouldn't want to do a longer fast right before competition. You're you're actually trying to often do carb loading, not carb depletion, <laughs> glycogen depletion. So, you know. But some people will use uh, fasting strategically, uh, an appropriate period before, and then there's a there's a training and loading episode. And and again, that's not my area of expertise. So I I wouldn't pretend to be giving you the best advice about maximizing athletic performance. What I can tell you though is that if you want athletes to continue to compete in advanced age, these types of diet and lifestyle factors are proving to be uh, very effective. I mean, I see it in my own um, life as a 62-year-old basketball player competing with 30- and 40-year-olds and seeing how they're already breaking down mm. and that, that the people that are able to compete continue to compete. Um, oftentimes are people that are taking diligent care of their Of their diet and lifestyle and recovery you know habits Uh, again so what maximizes short-term performance isn't necessarily what you do if your goal is to be able to continue to compete over the long run
1: yeah
0: well you talked about the both benefits from
2: both fasting and exercise and someone's going to listen to this and say well you can i just do one or the other can i just fast and and get healthier, or can I just do exercise and not fast? And
0: unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It's diet, sleep, and exercise are the foundation of health. Fasting is a tool to um, speed the processes, and and may be useful to helping with you know the intermittent fasting may be help a, a useful regulatory and recovery uh, thing. But you can't just fast and expect to maintain uh, maximum health, and you certainly can't just exercise. I mean, we've definitely seen <laughs> evidence of of uh, that exercise alone is not sufficient uh, to maintain health. You also have to combine it with diet, sleep, uh, and, you know, and th- those other variables, you got to do it all. If if your goal is to get the best result.
1: Yeah. I am I'm really interested in how did you come to be so passionate about drinking water only? Like, when did this begin for you?
0: Well, I, it's for me, it was strictly, uh, Frustration. I was 16 years old. I was a basketball player and trying to beat my friend, Doug Lyle, who happens to be the co-author of The Pleasure track. Uh He kept beating me despite how much I practiced and trained. And, and I thought, well, if I got healthier, maybe it would give me an edge and I could finally crush him. And I read a book by Herbert Shelton, and he said that health was the result of healthful living. And he talked about diet and fasting. And I thought, well, that makes sense. So I thought I would adopt those principles. As it turns out, it completely failed because he adopted the same approach and he still crushes me every time we play. So I can't, I'm hoping though that, you know, maybe as we reach our eighties, he'll start to break down a little faster for whatever reason. And then maybe I'll finally be able to beat him. But so even though it's been a complete complete failure, it did get me interested in this whole topic. I was also inspired by my uncle who was a physician. And when he heard of my interest in plant food diets and going into alternative medicine, he was violently opposed. He said that nobody in our family would ever go to one of those functional medicine type doctors, let alone become one of them, and that better I should be a communist spy. (laughs) So he screamed and yelled. And I actually, I remember at my 16th birthday, I was going to see my first stroke there. But anyway, he goes away. My dad, who's a really serious guy, takes me aside. He said, son, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine or diet, but anything that makes him that angry, that mad, it can't be bad. So you stick to your guns. And I did. And I stuck to my guns and and went to school and went to chiropractic college and then osteopathic college, opened up the True North Health Center 36 years ago. My wife says the only reason I opened up True North Health Center was for two reasons. One, so I'd have a place to eat. And number two, so I could prove I was right and everybody else was wrong. Because <laughs> at that time, a lot of the things that we're, we're advocating are today becoming much more acceptable. The idea of a whole plant food, SOS-free diet, the idea that fasting may have utility. Back then, we were considered criminal quacks. Today, cutting-edge researchers. So there's been a big transition that's taken place in the last uh, 36 years. And I feel like now we're really getting going. We have a good research facility with a nice staff. We've got some good affiliations, and we're doing some good work. Uh, showing what you can do to actually get and stay healthy. And and a big part of that does turn out to be fasting. Fasting is a useful tool. And it turns out that people that are willing to exercise and eat well, uh, they they tend to do really well. And we're seeing the effects. I'm getting 35-year follow-ups on patients now. So people that we started working with, they were in their 50s. Now they're in their 80s. And, you know, some of them are outliving their kids. It's really shocking when you see how much difference it makes, particularly as people reach that uh, 60, 70, 80 year old um, uh, years, then the difference between them and everybody else that they've been raised with starts to really show up, and that's what I'm excited about. Is, is you know it, you can see the long term uh, benefits, and now we're able to start to objectify.
2: Is there a rolling? Is there a rolling? Uh, a lead up to the people who are 60 70 and 80 that is most beneficial like they started when they were in their 50s or is this immediate results like somebody who goes in they're 65 and you know a couple months later they're thriving
0: well you know it's interesting because th- there's pretty good evidence that uh, w- the diet that you eat even as a child makes a profound difference on your long-term risk factors um, and so I think the earlier we get people eating healthfully, the better we're going to see in the long run but it, what's shocking to me is how well even because like let's face it, most of the people we see at Trinity Health Center are motivated by pain, debility, and fear of death. so they have high blood pressure diabetes, autoimmune disease, lymphoma, and they get well, even these people like you know, if you go to a conventional doctor with high blood pressure, they will tell you, look, well, here's a pill or two or three or four or five and you'll be on these drugs the rest of your life because we'll guarantee you if you do exactly what we tell you, you'll never get well. You'll be sick the rest of your life. You'll be on these drugs forever, and that's just how it is. If you're a diabetic, you're not getting off any drugs. You're just you're going to take these drugs forever. Nobody gets well. Um, if you have autoimmune diseases, well, it's methotrexate. It's, it's, it's steroids. Yes, they're going to cause your liver to fail, but it's the best we can do. Nobody gets well, and diet doesn't matter. And we published a paper recently in the British Medical Journal on the successful treatment of follicular lymphoma, you know, uh, lymph cancer, with three-year follow-ups on people making diet and lifestyle changes and using fasting. So even in some of the more serious advanced conditions, it's remarkable to me how well the body can sometimes heal itself if you just get out of the way. And a lot of that means getting away from the poor diet and lifestyle choices or the drugs that are being used to to deal with the symptomatic management of the condition. Uh, And so... You know, that's the goal that we have at True North Health Foundation is to try to figure out how to do this better, document what's going on, and then share our results with our reluctant colleagues that, you know, think that diet doesn't matter and that you have to be sick for the rest of your life and that it's normal to age out so that by the time you're in your 60s or 70s, you can't engage in health-promoting activities or enjoy your life. So in
1: 1984... Were people rushing to come in the door or did you open up the door and were there crickets? Like what was going on? Well,
0: yeah, 1984, um, that was before the Wilk decision. So at that point it was unethical for a medical doctor to refer a patient to somebody like me or accept a referral from somebody like me. They could lose their hospital privileges for that. Um, we kept a very, very low profile. Uh, and, uh, fortunately, uh, you know we were able to uh, get uh, the kind of results that speak for themselves, and it was really the results of the individual patients we saw and then their referral people that were able to uh, keep us engaged and we have grown you know considerably, you know now the True North Health Center has seventy employees and fifteen clinicians in an internship and residency program, we process a thousand patients a year. Uh, for fa- fasting inpatient and we have an active phone coaching service that services people all over the world where people can go to our website complete their health history and inf- information and work with doctors that aren't idiots that are expect people to get well and we have medical doctors chiropractors osteopaths, psychologists and so the this new more recent use of zoom and other things has really been quite good for us because it's allowed do- people to get access to our doctors remotely the, even if they weren't able to come to the center and stay with us for fast, and they could still get the benefits of working with doctors affordably, remotely, and actually quite effectively. Even our chiropractors that are working with uh, patients remotely, you think, how can a chiropractor work with a patient remotely? We, we use the Zoom. We have them go through functional movement assessment. We give them video clips to corrective exercises they can do. They can process their... so even. Even the chiropractors are able to work uh, to some degree remotely, and the medical doctors uh, and the psychologists really don't seem to have too much trouble at all. It's it's really quite efficacious, and so between our phone coaching services, our inpatient facility, um, and the research that we're doing, uh, now the exposure is much bigger. And of course, they have um, opportunities like this. Like I used to speak to live audiences. I traveled around the country, and I would speak to 200 people, or 500 people, or you know, and. And that was how we got exposure. Uh, now, I know one of the shows I did a few months ago has had 1.7 million views with Rich Roll. Well, we've had literally hundreds of people calling that would never have, how would they know about us? We don't advertise, we're not in the phone book, you know. And so the, the use of this podcast uh, model is now exposing, ma- I mean, it would have taken, they, somebody calculated it would have taken me 480 years to reach the number of people with the old talk to people in audiences that we reached in one show on one. I mean, you know, it's, so now it's very different. So, you know, we, we can get exposure to the very small percentage of people willing to do dangerous and radical things like exercise and eat well and go to bed on time or fast. Cause let's face it. Most people, they think if they get in a plane in New York and they flew all the way to California, they would die of starvation somewhere over Colorado unless they ate the peanuts, you know, that pretzels saved their life because they would have, you know, died. And of course, now we know that's really not true.
1: Did you see any kind of increase in 2020, like people looking for higher states of health? I mean, I think also with that, you know, one of the essential businesses were liquor stores stayed
0: open. Yeah. So one thing we noticed, two things that were a big change. Number one, because people can work at home, and at the True North Health Center, we have a really robust internet, you know, Wi-Fi bandwidth, all that stuff. They can work now when they didn't used to be able to work when they came in to say do fasting or do a stay. So a lot of people that couldn't get three weeks off and that they needed to maybe do a stay now can do that because they don't have to miss work. So for many of our patients, that's been a huge blessing because it gives them more opportunity to come and stay with us and go through our program. Um, so that number two, people are now uh, comfortable working with doctors remotely. So our phone coaching services would—you know—that was too weird before. You can now it's like they prefer that rather than sitting in some infested office somewhere waiting in line for hours. And you know now it's you know a lot more efficient. Um, and also particularly for us because the people we work with are really a rarefied audience of highly motivated self-selected people. The fact that they can reach us from anywhere in the world conveniently really helps our kind of operation. So the, the, advent, the, the advent of these types of technologies has really been a huge benefit to our patients and to our operation. Also, we can have doctors that aren't necessarily physically at our facility now. We have remote doctors that work with us, that are vetted by us, but they may not necessarily live in Northern California uh, although most of them eventually decide to move there because it's like the most beautiful place in the world to live. I mean, you, it's just great if you're a biker, if you're a runner, if you're a farmer. Northern California is, uh, is really spectacular. And that's why we originally selected Santa Rosa because we felt after we did our research that it was the best place in the country to live. And I think we're right.
2: What um, I'm curious uh, on the water fasting, especially the people that you um, are supervising in there. Um, and just from the 24 hours that I experience it, the heightened awareness of um, stuff that's going on, because you're talking about them being able to work. And if they're on the water fast, what is the, what is the engagement level or acuteness of being aware versus like drifting off um, and not having well, the
0: calories? A lot of the people that are working, they'll go through their fast and then they'll work during recovery. There's a recovery period. Um, some people, I have one guy that only works when he fasts. He's a writer, he's written mm-hmm. movies that you've seen, and he comes in once a year, he fasts, writes a screenplay, and then that's it, he doesn't do anything the rest of the year. In fact, that's part of the problem, I'm trying to get him to do more stuff during the rest of the year, but he he works best in the fasting state, so his creativity, whatever. So some people really find they're greatly enhanced during fasting. We try to get people resting during fasting, both mentally and physically, but there's always half the length of time recovery. And that's the, that's the difference. So somebody might really take a week off to do a fast, but they couldn't take two weeks off. And so that now they can do their fast. I mean, the first few days of fasting, you may not be as productive and feel as good. But then once you get through that adaptation, mind is often very sharp.
1: Yeah, And so a
0: lot of people make, you know, isn't it interesting? All these religions, the Jews, the Jains, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Christians, they kill each other over their disagreements. But one thing they all have in common, fasting. They all have a tradition about fasting. Because fasting changes the way you think, how you see yourself, how you feel. You can't help it. You know, we are not a spiritually driven center. We, we don't we keep our beliefs to ourselves. We don't try to tell people how to get into heaven or what to believe or any of that stuff. But you can't help but notice that, you know, people have these profound epiphany experiences when they're fasting and it's not driven by us. It's just a natural consequence of going through this process of fasting. And I think that's why many of these religions have recognized it both for physical as well as you know, spiritual practices, it has an enhancing benefit.
1: Do you have any research on that? Like any changes in the brain or things like in the executive decision-making area of the brain?
0: Yeah, you know, I believe there is a literature. I'm not familiar specifically with that, but our director of research, Tasha Myers, who's the real scientist in our group, uh, she probably would be a good person that we could ask about, you know, what's the current literature on, on brain function. I, I, I'm quite confident and I vaguely recall that there there is some imaging issues and stuff, but I'm just not uh conversant with it and I don't have that on my little note cards in here which make it seem like I'm cognizant of all the current changes.
2: So you, you mentioned um, 12 to 16 hours um, is is a good fast. And as athletes, you know, we're, we're fluid with what we're doing. You know, we talked about how much you need to get calories in and that window is is typical to, to get some benefit of it. Um, obviously, well, I guess not obviously, but I'm assuming eight, 16 hours would be more beneficial than 12 hours because um, it's longer and... Oh, go ahead.
0: No, not necessarily. <laughs> Walter Longo says that the research supports 12 hours, that the 16 hours that we're doing may be additionally beneficial for weight loss and may be additionally benefit for some of these healing, but it's not necessarily been documented that it's better for long-term health or athletic performance. So let's not uh, assume we're using 16 hours as a way of maximizing detoxification weight loss, not necessarily is that going to be the right amount of time for athletic performance. And here's how you can tell you've got to get enough calories in. And when you're eating very low-caloric-density foods on average, you've got to just, you can do the math. How many pounds do you have to eat? How much can you eat? So if you're finding you're not getting enough calories in because you're trying to narrow your window too much, that may be contraproductive. And there's not good research on athletic performance and intermittent fasting that I'm aware of as far as quantifying exactly what that means. So I would be careful about getting too black and white kind on of that. Um, I don't find people that can't do it in 12. 12 hours is enough of a feeding window so you can get your calories in pretty much no matter what you're doing. Oh
1: my gosh, that's such helpful information. But
0: 16 hours does present a problem for some of my high caloric output patients.
2: I think that that's, I, I love that you, you pointed that out because we get, so, we get so hooked on it, right? You know, the, the carnivore diet, like the carnivore diet must be the, the greatest thing in the world right now. Um, one of the greatest things. And so we get hooked on these numbers, but I, I think that it's, Um, it's getting the proper information. So that... But, you know,
0: to me, that's a bit of a puzzle because, you know, animal foods in general, I mean, we can argue about should you have none or a little or does a little matter, but... But eating a very high animal food diet, we already know that the animal foods are very rich in arachidonic acids, very pro-inflammatory. You can look all around you and see what happens to people on high animal food diets. It's hardly desirable. Now, some people say, well, oh, it's just the refined carbohydrates that's responsible for everything. But I think that's a little disingenuous because, um, now, it is true that processed animal products may be even more of a risk than you know, whole animal products, just like processed vegetable products. Our problem. When they say, well, carbohydrates are bad, well, yeah, 86% of carbohydrates consumed by the average person are refined carbohydrates. I think we all agree refined carbohydrates are a problem. We don't want to have people filling up with sugars and doing all this stuff, whether you're on a higher protein, including animal food or not. Um, and so maybe you could argue that if you're eating whole animal foods, that it would be less detrimental than highly processed animal foods. I wouldn't have a problem agreeing with that. But if you look at the bulk of the literature, the peoples that tend to do the best, in my experience, are people that are eating dominantly whole plant foods and minimizing animal foods. And some of that, yes, may be the types of animal foods that are available to us today. You know, even the whole animal foods available today are being raised in, in circumstances that are highly questionable and may also be responsible. Those practices may be responsible, some of the viral infections and other problems that we're suffering with, as we are become a breeding ground for um, uh uh, viruses that can occasionally transmit within humans. And now we've got, you get pandemics and other problems that probably would be much more rare if we weren't having these uh, practices of jamming large amounts of animals into small amounts of spaces and, you know, raising them in ways that maximize weight gain and fat performance rather than, you know, the health of the animal. So, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons that we should be encouraging people to adult, dominantly plant-based diets, if nothing else, to keep the planet, allow the planet to survive, minimize the methane production that's associated with animal production, the you know, environmental impact, the moral, the spiritual, the ethical. There's a lot of reasons to try to minimize um, animal food intake. In my experience, uh, the less, the better, more consistent with health, and certainly we see that in recovery. And I would challenge our recovery data from conditions like diabetes and hypertension against anything, as I said. If you look at the results there, it's it's really hard to argue that at least that's not one good method of doing it. Doesn't mean there's not other methods, but you know at least we know that that does work.
1: I've heard you mention um, on this podcast and on other podcasts, and I've it's kind of uh, a number I hear a lot is this no eating three hours before you go to bed. Okay. So not to have a super hard line, but what's around that? Because, you know, like the late night snackers, like a 9 PM sandwich, what's going on in the, in the body when we're not So one of the
0: problems is when you eat right before you go to bed, your body doesn't have a chance to, like it would, if you were eating earlier in the day, uh, burn it, utilize it. So it's going to be easier to store fat as a consequence of late night eating, than it would be earlier. So one of it's a weight loss technique. Because remember, two thirds of the population are obese. Metabolic syndrome major risk factor for future death and dying from COVID and everything else. We're really focused on the two thirds of our patients or more overweight or obese eating three hours before they go to bed means their sleep quality's improved because they're not having to go through the digestive apparatuses, which can uh, reduce your sleep quality. Uh, you're not having to wake up. To expel the consequences of your consumption you've already emptied your bladder and stuff for you to bed so you sleep deeper sleep better um, the uh, tendency to overeat people are eating at night not because they're hungry because they're tired fatigued irritated some people eat for a lot of reasons people some people eat because their husband makes them mad you know I've had patients I, mean, oh, I only eat chocolate when my husband annoys me I say, well make him eat it you know he's annoying you why should you suffer make him suffer you know so but the point is not eating, in our, three hours is arbitrary. Some people find it's better if they have four, depending on, the, on how they, their bowels empty and their bladder empties and all that stuff. But the point is, not eating right until you go to sleep tends to have a beneficial effect on not weight control, but also on sleep quality, digestion, okay? uh, et cetera. Um, and then it also gives you that eight hours of sleeping, hopefully, that you're getting, in addition to the three hours, you've already got your 11 hours even by the moment you wake up of uh, fasting. So you're, you're accentuating that eight hours of sleep that you're already getting, and then all you have to do is maybe add an hour or two or three or four, depending on what you're trying to do, uh, before you eat again. So what I like patients that are trying to do weight control to do is, but have three hours before you go to sleep, and then have your sleep, wake up, do some exercise in the morning, which oftentimes is a really good opportunity for people to exercise, and then you know, you, you, you do your feeding regime as it's appropriate starting, whether it's 9 or 10 or whatever it is that's going to work in your schedule. And then uh, and repeat.
1: So I've heard you talk about um, when they're, they're doing a fast, they're resting, but we're also hearing you say like a little bit of exercise towards the end of an intermittent fast.
0: During, if you're talking about 16 hours of fasting or 12 hours of fasting, you still have glycogen, so you're not going to force gluconeogenesis. You're still going to be able to uh, minimize protein degradation. If you start going beyond 16 hours of fasting or beyond the time you've depleted your glycogen stores, now the only way the body's going to get glucose to maintain muscle or brain activity is gluconeogenesis. That's why people that fast and then do vigorous exercise, that's a mistake. Because what happens is, yes, you'll lose more weight, but you'll lose a higher proportion of muscle. And we're not looking to break down muscle, we're looking to preserve muscle and break down fat. And I'll give you a study. To Justin, we have a whole logic scanner at the True North Health Center now as part of our research efforts. And that allows us not only to do the normal osteoporosis screening, but also do whole body composition. So we can break down how much is fat, how much is visceral fat, how much is lean tissue. And we've just done a study in conjunction with our colleagues from the Mayo Clinic that will be coming out later this year where we've been able to show in fasting before and after what actually happens to the body. And in in summary, what happens is you lose a bunch of weight, and it's fat, muscle, fiber, water, and glycogen. When you come off the fast, you gain a bunch of weight. But what you're gaining is muscle, water, glycogen, and fiber, not fat. The fat keeps going down if you're eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet. And more importantly, visceral fat appears to be preferentially mobilized. So if you take a healthy male, say, that fast for two weeks, they might lose 20% of their adipose tissue, but they may lose 50% of visceral fat and only 4% of lean tissue, and that lean tissue comes back after fasting. Now, this is the first time I've seen uh, the effect of long-term fasting on body composition, and so we're really excited about that, and we're glad that we were able to get this this device, because in the past you could measure fat, but you couldn't uh, identify visceral fat reliably. And so now we know we have the most powerful way of mobilizing visceral fat compared to any other visceral fat-to-fat fat ratios. And so as we publish that data, I think it will really... It a lot of people off, but anyway. But I mean, like you're you're exciting. basically
1: telling us that you can drink water, you can use your free will to have self-control, um, you can make a powerful choice like going to True North and having a medically supervised fast. Like you're basically saying, like, we've got the magic pill. And, you, and, and yeah, it's not it, a
0: pill. And it's not, a, it's pill. not <laughs> a pill. But what's interesting is the reason fasts become more acceptable in part is because people like Walter Longo have published papers showing that fasting in conjunction with chemotherapy enhances survival. And so that when the pharmaceutical industry realized, oh, fasting does something to the body that helps make cancer cells more vulnerable to chemotherapy and healthy cells protected against the damages of chemotherapy, so differential stress resistance and differential stress sensitivity, then they said, well, wait a second. Why don't we come up with a drug that would do the same thing to the body that fasting does and now they're working on what are called fasting drugs and so the idea is you get the benefit of fasting without having to do that nasty fasting where you have to rest and not eat you just do whatever you want to do but take this pill well that's become I think rather popular but the point is the mechanisms have been established it works in animals it appears to work in people and. So we're not doing fasting mimicking programs. We're actually doing fasting, the stuff that they're trying to mimic. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, we're going to be doing some, hopefully, research next year that will compare some of the effects of intermittent fasting and some of these programs where you, maybe you reduce your caloric intake and rest, you know, for four or five days and then, you know, see the effect of that versus longer-term fasting. So, and for people that are interested in this research, the foundation has a website at fasting.org which is a fasting compendium website. In fact, the new version that'll launch in about a week um, has all of the world's literature on fasting, freely available so abstracts of all the 500 articles that have been done on fasting. so all in our research as well, all of that's going to be conveniently available to researchers, clinicians or the public that are interested in getting into the weeds on, on fasting. We also have at our standard site at com all of our articles and and on our studies and webinars and different things, that's freely available. We have, what's, we have a Roku channel now with a lot of our content that people can freely access. We live stream uh, some of our educational programs from True North Health. So people can go onto our website and get access to all of the information. And what's really interesting um, is we talk about fasting, we talk about diet. But many of our patients, because it usually takes a couple months to get into the center because we're weight we're loss, they'll work on our phone coaching with our doctors And so I'll enroll somebody in maybe a high blood pressure study. And what I've been finding now is by the time the two months is ready where we can admit them, they're already better. (laughs) These doctors are screwing up our screening (laughs) processes because by the time they come in, their blood pressure is already normal. And we have nothing to research anymore. And what have they done? Diet, sleep, sleep exercise so implementing these very same practices that we're discussing here getting them to narrow their feeding window, get them on a whole plant food diet things they can do on their own safely, forget fasting, just doing that for many people is enough to resolve the problem and so what we say is you do that if, if you're having trouble doing it, it's too hard for you, or you've done it, but it's not working quickly enough, or maybe it's complicated because you've got drugs and we've got to get you off the drugs and whatever, then you come to the True Health Center and we do, you know, we do it for you. But for many people, they, that just the, the fear of fasting is enough to motivate or to make the diet changes, then they don't have to do it.
1: Wow!
2: Yeah, you mentioned I, I, I love you. You mentioned this when someone was like, "Well, how long is the fasting that you need to do?" You were like, "Well, it's it's more about what goes in your body than about the intermi- than the fasting that goes on." And I guess that's to your point. Like these people are changing the way that they're fueling their bodies. They're making choices of what actually they're purposely putting in their hand and then in their mouth is the most profound thing you can do.
0: You know. Even fasting itself, a big part of what happens in fasting is like the food that healthy foods sometimes taste like crap to people if they're used to highly processed foods. They're disgusting, tasteless swill if you get them to try to eat salads or vegetables. But after fasting... Good foods taste good. And we've done a study at the True North Health Center actually showing that your perception, the hedonic response to food changes and your actual minimal detection of things like salt and sugar changes with fasting. And that's why people, when they start the fast, they don't want to eat fruits and vegetables. After fasting, they find they're, they're actually good. And so now it gets easier to get people to eat well because good foods taste good. It's hard when foods are disgusting and awful. And so that's one of the benefits that happens of just. Fa- so it's not even the healing of fasting alone, but the ability to get people to make diet and lifestyle changes that can be very. Look at, well, alcoholism. What do you have to do? Quit drinking. If you can stop drinking every day, you win. Can everybody do that? Do you want to say, oh, you know, your life sucks because you're a drunk, quit drinking, and they go, oh, it's alcohol. I had no idea. Okay, well, I won't drink anymore. No. They might tell you to mind your own effing business because, you know, it's hard. It's hard to escape the pleasure trap. So sometimes alcoholics need more help. So you, they go to an inpatient facility and, they, and get some help. But ultimately, it's pretty simple. Don't do the things that are causing you to be sick, and then you get well. So if you need help, that's fine. We can help you. If you don't need help, just do it and prove we're right.
1: I <laughs> love it. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. I thank you for taking that leap and for wanting to beat um, Dr. Lyle on the court because it's <sighs> brought you to where you are today. And I know you're going to beat him at some point. Just keep Someday. Just keep going. I mean, if you can get tens of thousands of people through the doors of a stimulant-free, alcohol-free <laughs> environment, I believe you can beat him <sighs> on the court.
0: Yeah, you know it's 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 a challenge, though. You know, I I I tried to do. A, I I thought, you know, because he is he's just naturally quick and he's ambidextrous and he's a really good basketball player. But I thought, you know, free throws are just practice, right? That's it. So I thought, well, I can do that. So I practiced for six months. You know, I'm shooting 500 free throws a day. I got a coach to give me the the same thing every. So then I go out and I casually he hasn't played at all for like a week. And I say, hey, let's do a free throw shooting contest. And he says, okay. And I hit 48 out of 50, and I thought, I've got him, okay? He hits 19, he misses one, he hits 80 in a row, okay? Now, I have never hit 80 in a row in my life, okay? I don't know if I ever will. So the problem is, little did I know in fourth grade that I was competing against a mutant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Time over duration, as BJ always says. So just just keep at it. Keep going.
2: Keep eventually. Yeah. Eventually, it happens. Dr. Goldhammer,
1: thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Oh man, it was just great. We just you just dropped a load of information on people, and they have no excuses. Exercise, sleep, uh, and SOS-free diet. So you got it. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing for the health of our world. We appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.